Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening and time together. We pray that you would help us uh, to grow more in the knowledge of you. And we pray that you would help us especially see how you uh, continue to work through history in your people's lives as uh, we consider uh, the growth and the continuation of your word, um, uh, both in uh, history and especially here in America. We pray that you would uh, bless this time together, and we pray this all through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. All right. So uh, we're on uh, page 227, if you have your books. 227. And there we go. This chapter is called Lutheranism After Luther, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the things in this chapter, and then we'll see if we also get to some of chapter 29. Um, There's a couple parts in here that I think we already actually covered, so I don't want to cover too much, but... But really what we want to do is uh, start to move towards um, not just the history of the Reformation, but we've kind of gotten through the Reformation era to some degree. And we want to consider, uh, as the title says, Lutheranism after Luther, but really how did we get here, right? So, um, I mean, it, it does, it's still 500 years, right? But in this in the scope of human history, 500 years isn't that terribly long, and so uh, we'll we'll try and kind of speed through some of this, but we want to, uh, yeah, really figure out kind of where we came from, right? Um, if you've ever done any genealogy before, you know that you learn a lot about yourself, actually, by doing genealogy, right? You, you find out um, what kind of people you came from, what they struggled with, how you struggle similarly, and uh, kind of what brought about your existing, right? Well, the same thing is true with what we could call kind of church genealogy, which is where did where did we come from, right? And and what affected some of the things that uh, we experience today? And we've already seen this if if you think about a lot of the things that we've talked about uh, with the different kinds of practice in our church today how we'll look back and say, oh, the, the 1960s and 70s really affected this, or uh, the Lutherans coming to America really affected the, the change in this practice or whatever. So um, that's uh, kind of what we're going to be doing here. So um, page 227, Division and Concord. This section here is uh, something that we kind of already covered about how when uh, there there was different Reformation groups, if you will. So there was Luther and the Evangelicals, but then pretty soon right after that, there was also some other kind of splinter groups off of that after Luther had the courage to start the Reformation, there were these other splinter groups off of the Reformation as well. Uh, and the book here mentions two names, Ulrich Zwingli, which uh, Zwingli from Switzerland was uh, really the guy who promoted a symbolic view of the Lord's Supper for the first time in history. And then uh, John Calvin uh, was another. And uh, John Calvin, of course, is the father of Calvinism, right? Or uh, also um, 
normally referred to now as the Reformed uh, in a more general sense. So I don't know how we got stuck with the name Lutheran and, and then the Calvinists get stuck with the name Reformed. Like, like, yeah, they should be stuck with the guy's name and we yeah. can take the name reform. But uh, anyway, that's that is what it is. Um, and there's a few different stripes of reformed today, of course. So just as kind of a side note, right, you uh, we, we already talked about this when we talked about denominations. But uh, your traditional Calvinist is the five points of Calvinism, TULIP. Does that sound familiar? You remember that? I'm sure we covered it when we talked about denominations. But there are different types of reform, too. So you have the TULIP reformed, which are, um, you know, double predestination. And um, uh, they, they still hold to, like, infant baptism. But there's a couple other – there's a number of things in the, in the TULIP acronym we could talk about. But then there's, like – you also have like three-point Calvinists today. So your tulip is your five-point Calvinist, but you also have like three-point Calvinists where they're like, oh, maybe this, but not this, right? Um, anyway, and then you have things like Reformed Baptists today. So uh, people who are Reformed in their way, they think about salvation, but they reject infant baptism. So all of that to say is it gets kind of complicated um, the further you go down through history. Okay, but if we take the Zwinglians and the Calvinists and and then all the other groups, the Anabaptists um, as well, uh, we get this what's called the Radical Reformation. And the basic idea there, which I think we've already talked about, is that the the Lutheran idea was a conservative reformation. This was the Lutheran idea, conservative reformation, where we wanted to conserve – all of the good things of the Roman Catholic Church, right? We wanted to conserve, we could even say it this way, we wanted to conserve the Catholicism, right? The universal faith. That's what Catholic means, right? Universal. We wanted to conserve the, the good parts of the Roman Catholic Church. Well, that was opposed then to the Radical Reformation, which was to say we want to radicalize the Roman Catholic Church, right? We want to do something completely different, okay? So um, this is kind of a basic distinction of the things happening in as far as the reformers go uh, or the Protestants go the people protesting the Roman Catholic Church, the Lutherans were the only ones who were kind of conservative reformers, right? So this is the big distinction, I think, between Lutherans and other Protestants um, is that, and this is, sometimes you hear this joke that Lutherans, for this reason, are called Catholic lights. Have you ever heard that, right? Light. Uh, Yeah, like light beer. It's like the light version of Catholicism. Um, But I would say... I, my response to that is, well, we were the first ones to call the Pope the Antichrist. So I don't really think you can say that we're Roman Catholic light. Uh, we're pretty firmly against that, but we did want to conserve the truth that was was there, right? But um, anyway, all right. So you get the Radical Reformation. Um, you also get – it just mentions a couple of the different other Protestants there. 
You get the English Reformation that happens um, because Henry VIII wants a divorce, right? And so that's where the Anglicans come from, and and so on and so forth. Okay. Uh, also, after Luther's death, so some of that started, some of that radical Reformation stuff started during Luther's life. Like Luther met with Zwingli, for instance, and debated about the Lord's Supper with him. But a lot of the Radical Reformation really takes off after after Luther's death. Um, also after Luther's death, uh, you get the expansion of the Lutheran Reformation into uh, – this is the top of page 28 um, – Denmark, Norway, um, and soon to move into Sweden and Finland and other parts of Europe. So um, from kind of what mod- we think of as modern-day Germany into parts of Scandinavia. And that's going to be important, by the way, when we get to – American Lutheranism. Okay. Um, then it talks about the Council of Trent. We already talked about the Council of Trent. I'm not going to rehash all that. Uh, okay. So then it goes on to talk about how Luther's death brought this time of challenge for the Reformation. And we already kind of mentioned all of this, but it does bring it back into focus. So, of course, after Luther dies, um, someone kind of needs to take up the mantle of the Reformation, especially with all these splinter groups happening. Um, it talks about here about Melanchthon being an option for that, but the problem with Melanchthon is that Melanchthon is deeply hurt about the divide between uh, the Calvinist, basically, the Reformed, and uh, and the Lutherans. And for what it's worth, I, I will say that when you read Calvin – he sounds a lot less Calvinistic than modern-day Calvins, if that makes sense. Um, and, for instance, when it comes to the Lord's Supper, a, a lot of Calvinists these days are basically more Zwinglian. They're basically more symbolic view. But Calvin himself, and, and there's been a little, bit of a um, – Repraisal of this in, in modern day reform circles. But Calvin himself, he does believe in a real presence, not the same way we would describe it. Um, so we would say there's a real physical presence in the elements, hidden in the elements themselves. <laughs> Calvin says there's a real presence, but it's only experienced spiritually, it's not in the elements themselves. So that's that's not symbolic, but it's also not Lutheran, right? It's not where we would come down and say, look, this is my body, this is my blood. It's that simple. They would say, well, it's not quite that simple, right? So, um, but they're a lot closer, the, at, the, at the time especially, the Reformed were a lot closer to Lutherans than I think we give them credit for. And I think that's why Melanchthon was so hurt by the the split between them right because he thought we could find a way to get along and and so we can credit melanchthon with that i I don't think we should give melanchthon too hard of a time however that said um i don't think that there was a way that we could have been in true complete fellowship with them and melanchthon when he edits the augsburg confession which we've talked about before that really is a problem for the Lutherans, I think. So um, anyway, because of all of that, Melanchthon ends up not being a very good leader for the Lutherans because he ends up 
you know, fault going back on what he said in the original Augsburg Confession. So, okay, so with all of that going on, um, with the Radical Reformation and Melanchthon going off in another direction and Luther dying, um, the Lutherans are starting to fall apart a little bit. And there's all these different controversies within Lutheran theology um, now taking place. Uh, this is kind of from like the, let's say like the 1550s, basically, and 1560s, especially. Okay, that's where we get, um, I think, again, we've already talked about this, but that's where we get the formula of Concord. All right, the formula of Concord is this the last document in the Book of Concord, and what it does is it goes through all these controversies and gives the Lutheran position on them, right? The final Lutheran position. And uh, the people who wrote that are a group of theologians uh, led by Martin Chemnitz, who we talked about, I think we mentioned, is often called the second Martin because he kind of held the Reformation together, right? If it wasn't for Martin Chemnitz, we might not have Lutheranism today. So uh, Martin Chemnitz kind of led, uh, took the took the charge of the evangelicals, and and produced the formula of Concord to bring resolution to these issues. Okay, and it was uh, first released in 1577, and then and then um, the Book of Concord itself was officially published in 1580. Right, and so we talked. I think we talked about that all last week. Okay, so. Um, that brings us back up to speed, more or less, and some of that was review. But what happens after that? Okay, so we kind of say we get to the year 1600. Where are we at? Um, from 1618, so this is under the paragraph unrest and splintering. From 1618 to 1648, the Thirty Years' War ravaged much of Central Europe. You know why it was called the Thirty Years' War? Last of Thirty Years. Yep. That's. I I always had a professor who told that joke every every time every time the Thirty Years' War came up. You guys know why it was called Thirty Years' War? Anyway, so now I have to tell the joke every time. So, um, some historians look on this war as a war of religion, um, but that's only partly true. In fact, the Thirty Years' War was really a series of wars for power within Europe. While the start of the wars revolved around the struggles of Protestant powers and the Catholic ones, it devolved into simply fighting for political control of Europe. Remember, at this time, separation of church and state is not at all what it looks like today, right? It was um, the, there, the, the church was the official religion of the land, right? And, and religious rulers also had... Um, political authority or political sway, at least, right? Um, so, and and uh, vice versa as well. Political rulers had theological sway, right? And sometimes that's good, sometimes it's bad, right? So, I mean, it's good to have Christian rulers, right? Um, but sometimes it's it's it can be bad as as well um, as it leads to war, for instance. Okay. Um, this was shown especially when heavily Roman Catholic France, whose prime minister was a Catholic cardinal, uh, Cardinal Richelieu, uh, joined the Protestant side of the war in 1635. Right, so it it wasn't really out of the point there is it wasn't really out of religious conviction; it was more out of a political power play. 
Following the devastation of the Thirty Years' War, many in Europe lost their zeal for things religious. This included a splintering in Lutheran theology, while the age of orthodoxy continued. So I don't – it must have brought that up earlier. Yeah, so um, that kind of 1580 period, right after 1580 uh, with Martin Chemnitz in charge, that's what's called the age of orthodoxy in, in Lutheranism. So this, this continued uh, really for the next hundred years or so where you had um, Lutheran theologians for the first time, like after Lutheranism had been established as a thing, right? You had the first kind of wave of academic Lutheran theologians, and they produced some really amazing stuff, right? So um, one of my favorite authors to read um, sermons and, and, and theological works is a guy named Johann Gerhard, and um, CPH publishes a lot of translations of Johann Gerhard these days, and it's fantastic stuff, right? It's it's just the the theology is brilliant, the way he words things is beautiful. Anyway, that's that's in all in the age of orthodoxy. Okay, so the age of orthodoxy continues, but there also after the Thirty Years' War continues to be splinter groups off of Lutheranism. So uh, one of these groups is uh, called the Pietist, and it mentions a guy there by the name of uh, Philip Jacob Spainer, who's the father of Pietism. And Pietism is is kind of interesting because it is a big emphasis on, um, you'd never guess this, right, by the name of it, pious living. <laughs> now, I think um, the... So this is because of a couple things. One, if you go back to the Reformation age, the late medieval Roman Catholics, they are works righteous people, right? They believe in works righteousness, but they're not really pious people, right? Their, um, their works righteousness are very uh, – it's, it's just like pay this indulgence, right? Or say these words, and then you'll be good to go. But it's not really a works righteousness of like actually doing good works, right? It's not like the late medieval Roman Catholic Church, which believed in works righteousness, was encouraging its members to like have really strong devotional lives or to, um, you know, go and feed the, the poor and take in the widows and the orphans or these types of things, right? The the late medieval Roman Catholic Church, it was all about money and power. When the Lutherans came, right, the evangelicals, they emphasized the gospel, right? They emphasized that you're not saved by these things. You're saved by grace alone through faith alone, which is absolutely correct and right and salutary. That's what needed to be emphasized at the time. But um, because of that, right, that the notion of good works as like truly good, right? And you know we're talking about prayer and tithing and fasting and um, you know like I things like I mentioned feeding the hungry, right? Clothing clothing the poor, uh, these types of things um, in some ways kind of got left by the wayside in theology. And Lutheranism, in this sense, I think has uh, Lutheranism has always kind of had a weakness, and and I mean this in a 
um, just that we should recognize, you know, where we need to kind of watch ourselves. I mean, I think Lutheranism is correct, but Lutheranism has kind of always had this weakness for what we would call antinomianism, which uh, obviously anti is against, and the word in Greek for law is namos. So whenever uh, we see the word antinomianism, that kind of means against the law or anti-law. And what antinomianism teaches, like this is a radical antinomianism, but what antinomianism teaches is that uh, basically you can sin as much as you want because you're not saved by works, you're saved by grace, right? And that grace means um, that you don't have to try and, and live a moral life, right? You can uh, basically live a debaucherous life and and continue in sin, um, but that God's grace is so great that you're going to be just fine, right? And that's not what the evangelicals taught. That's not what Luther taught um, or Melanchthon taught. Um, but Lutheranism, because it has such a strong emphasis on salvation by faith, uh, by grace through faith, it does kind of have a weakness for that line of thinking, unfortunately, um, where basically people will think, well, I don't really need to do anything good because, you know, I'm a poor, miserable sinner, so I might as well just embrace being a poor, miserable sinner and just let let myself be saved by Jesus, right? And what, but what is, let, let me be clear, what does the Bible teach? Well, the Bible teaches two things that they agree with each other. One is that you're saved by grace through faith, right? You can't save yourself. You are a poor, miserable sinner. But when you are saved, that means you have a new spirit. And that spirit wants to follow Christ. That spirit wants to do that which is good, right? And um, it will do good works, Right? This is what Ephesians 2 teaches. Is we're saved by grace through faith, not of our own doing, but as a work of God, to do the good works that he prepared for us beforehand to do. Right? Um, or uh, Romans 6, right? In, in Romans, Romans 1 through 5, Paul talks about how poor of sinners we are and how much God's grace has saved us and how we're saved by faith alone. And then Romans 6 starts out about baptism and he says, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he says, by no means, right? That we who have died to sin shall no longer live in it, right? But we should live to Christ, right? So yes, we struggle with sin and we struggle against sin in this life. But if we're Christians, right? And we're, we're Christians here in this room. If we're Christians, we're gonna strive to live godly, pious lives, okay? So... Anyhow, all of that is to say that um, what Spainer and the Pietists uh, saw in Lutheranism is this weakness for antinomianism. And there were, there were, by the way, in Spainer's time, there were real antinomians running around, right? There were real uh, debaucherous people running around calling themselves Christian. And so uh, Spainer... Uh, writes this uh, book um, 
what's it called? Uh, Pia Desideria, I think is what it's called. Um, but it's like the way of pious living or something like that. Anyway, uh, that's uh, the pietist movement. And um, you have some descendants of, of pietism to, today. So uh, in some ways, um, let's see, who comes out of the pietist? Um, I, I think the, some of like the Methodists are, are influenced by pietism. Um, and you, you have some descendants uh, that they called themselves Lutheran for a while that were influenced by, by pietists. Some of the church bodies that you can track down into America were more of the pietist strain. So basically what you get in um, kind of like 1700, eight, like 17th, 18th, 19th century Lutheranism in, in Europe is you get the pietist Lutherans and then you get what's what are called the Orthodox Lutherans after that age of orthodoxy. Versus pietism. And the Orthodox Lutherans, the thing that they were big about is we hold to the Book of Concord, right? And the Pietist Lutherans, they were about how do you live as a Lutheran, right? So it's kind of a false dichotomy, really, but um, because the Orthodox Lutherans weren't really antinomians either, but that's just kind of how it goes. Okay, so that was one of the splinter groups that came out. Um, you also had uh, um, some Lutherans in later kind of European Lutheranism that took up the banner of ra rationalism. So this is at the bottom of page 229. Um, that was a movement related to the Enlightenment and philosophy, so we talked about that. And um, unfortunately, that's where the modern-day liberal, theological liberalism came out of, right? Where, Mer as the book puts it, this movement led to what was to become known as theological liberalism, where miracles, divine inspiration of scripture, and other things that we do not see and experience in our daily lives were rejected out of hand. Um, so that was kind of unfortunate, is that uh, the rationalists got a hold, um, came out of... So it, it, it's interesting, like if you... Um, so one of the big modern philosophers that is very rationalistic in, in many ways is a guy, probably one of the most famous philosophers of all time is uh, Immanuel Kant, if you've ever heard of Kant. And his his father, for instance, is a Lutheran pastor. Okay. So um, same with Karl Marx, by the way. Karl Marx's father was a Lutheran pastor. Hmm. So you get a lot of these kind of crazy liberals and rationalists uh, in, in Europe during this time period that are connected to the Lutheran church, right? Now, some of them, like Kant and, and Marx, for instance, end up rejecting Lutheranism totally, but some kind of stay in that theological realm and end up becoming theological liberals, right? So uh, that that's also unfortunate. But And this is one of the, the annoying things with being with the name Lutheran is that not like – Today, in America, we have to distinguish ourselves from the ELCA. But even throughout history, there's been a lot of people who have claimed the name Lutheran who are not really what we would consider as Lutherans, right? So um, it's just one of those things of history. Mm, 
Well, all I'm going to say is it's a hard thing to, to have a father as a Lutheran pastor. So, you know. but, yeah, Gary? Um, yeah, so there's, uh, I mean, so in the 1940s, Lutheranism is the dominant uh, religion in, in Germany. And so you have people on both sides, you have Germans on both sides of the war that are claiming Lutheranism as their own. Yep. Um, yeah. All right. So then the next section, this is the section I really wanted to get to, is coming to America, the colonial period. Okay, so how did we get here? Um, the European stuff is interesting. Uh, hopefully you found it somewhat interesting. I find it interesting. But uh, this is what, I, what we really care about, is how do we come to America? Okay. Uh, the book goes on to talk about how basically there's not many – Lutherans in early America. There are Amer- Lutherans in early America, but they're very scattered, right? You might have a few, like I think it, the book here mentions, um, you know, in basically any European immigration, um, as the Europeans are coming over on boats, there's probably a couple Lutherans, you know, hidden among them. But they're basically pretty scattered, and there's not that many of them. And um, there's there are dominant Protestant religions in colonial America, right? There's, you know, some uh, of the when, – whenever you come to America, you can go back, interestingly, and look at some of the colonies' original constitutions. You know there are actually official state religions in the colonies? Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of people, when they, they – this gets very oversimplified – but a lot of people, when they think about America, early America, they think, oh, it's freedom of religion, right? It's a free-for-all. That's not exactly true. Um, freedom of religion in early America really meant, like, you can be different shades of Christianity and we'll accept you. And there were some that were not, right? Like Thomas Jefferson was um, a deist, right, which was not really a Christian. But um, for the most part, they were all Protestant Christians. And the Roman Catholics were kind of set aside, but they, they were also allowed. Um, but if – so if you come to colonial America, it mentions Puritanism, Anglicanism, some Roman Catholics, Dutch Reformed. Uh, there were some Unitarians, Quakers and Shakers, and some various nonconformists and free thinkers. But you know, most of the colonies actually had – uh, official state religions, right? They were either like Reformed or Puritan or Quaker or like whatever they were. So um, anyway, not many Lutherans there is the point. Okay, so uh, as this was happening, it goes on. I'm not going to read through all this, but it goes on to talk about uh, the history a little bit of Denmark and the Danish West Indies and, and Sweden and so on and so forth. Really the point there that the book is trying to make is that the people who are coming over in big waves from Europe and colonial America were not from Lutheran states. And you have to remember that still in Europe at this time, the whatever the ruler is of that place in Europe 
that's what their religion is, right? And there just weren't Lutheran places that were immigrating yet. So that's why you don't get that many uh, Lutherans, right? And um, the book here at some point makes the point that it would, uh, for the Lutherans that were in the colonies, um, oftentimes, this is at the end of the first paragraph under where it says early challenges, the typical Lutheran family often went years without a pastor or formal worship service. So it was hard for Lutheranism to get a foothold in the new world. Right, so that that was basically what it was. Oh, it does make this, this is a good point. I forgot to say this. So one of the challenges, other than the fact that there just weren't a lot and that they were pretty scattered, was that um, when it comes to Reformed and Congregationalists, they have a lot lower view of the office of pastor. And they were coming from the Reformed, for instance. Um, there was mass immigration from Reformed places in Europe. So they brought with them pastors. Lutherans, on the other hand, they have a very high view of the office of the ministry, which I think is correct, right? That, that it's, it points out here, the Augsburg Confession says that preaching and teaching in the churches is to be done by pastors, and pastors are to be trained and ordained, which meant being taught, examined, and licensed by the larger church. Well, that that becomes difficult where, so with the Reformed and Congregationalists, they either have pastors or they can just make pastors when they come to America. With the Anglicans and the Catholics, um, the church bodies are large enough in a worldwide sense that it's easier for people to become licensed and ordained. But with Lutherans... Um, you couldn't just do your own thing, right? And so for the most part, the Lutherans in North America were just cut off from their church bodies, right? And uh, and again, like even though there's the printing press, um, when you think about, like it's not like some, some guy in, in early America can just go to online seminary, right? Or call up the seminary on the phone, excuse me, and say... Um, that, hey, I, I, I'd like to be examined to become a LCMS pastor, right? It, it just didn't work that way. The, there weren't seminaries established in, in America, and um, there wasn't the kind of correspondence that we have today. So this is a, one of the big problems. The second problem that they had is that the problem of language. So in early America, not everyone is speaking English right away, right? I mean, you do have a lot of speaking in English, right? You have a lot of people coming from England, of course. But when people are coming from other places in Europe, they stay in their little enclaves and they don't change their language right away, right? And this is true still today that, um, you know, if a group of people comes over from uh, Poland, and they moved to Chicago. There's a lot of Polish people in Chicago. Um, they, among amongst their own family, they'll still speak Polish, right? So uh, this is true in America. So you know the the people coming, the Lutherans that are coming um, from German 
Germany and, and other places, right, they're speaking German. And there's just not a lot of – well, one, there's not pastors speaking German. And uh, I'll, just, I'll just read this. So um, I'm going to start in the middle of this paragraph here. So even if there were worship – uh, or even if there were enough Lutherans in one area, they had a hard time forming congregations. And when they did, they usually had to have one building and one pastor serving multiple ethnic congregations and holding services in various languages, right? Because it's not just Germany that they're coming from; they're also coming from uh, they're 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 also speaking Danish and Swedish and and uh, these other languages too. And um, so it it's, goes on here which meant that at least some of the people were being served by a preacher who was stumbling through a sermon in a language he didn't know very well. Um, the Catholics, on the other hand, worshipped in Latin, so it didn't matter where they came from. Uh, the Anglicans and Dutch Reformed had large populations, um, and you know a lot of those people spoke English anyway, so that wasn't even a problem. right? So the Lutherans were stuck trying to make a go of it on their own. Many Lutheran immigrants to American colonies simply found it easier to convert to whatever Christian denomination had a pastor or a building nearby and services in their language. And we, we kind of talked about that in the past, I think a couple times, is that um, one of the things that happens during this time is that because of this language issue and numbers issue and demographics is that Lutherans would all, often hook up with the Reformed and you'd have these kind of unionistic churches and um, we even have some Reformed influences in in our liturgy to this day because of that right so like having the um the one that comes to mind is having the confession and absolution at the beginning of the church service right that was not a lutheran thing that was a reform thing um but it stuck around so okay uh then it talks about the need for pastors which we already kind of covered right All right, so uh, early organization. The history of Lutheranism in North America as a lasting, organized, authentically Lutheran and authentically American thing really begins with the name Henry Melchor Muhlenberg, 1711 to 1787. In 1733, three congregations in Pennsylvania contacted a mission society in Saxony trying to get a missionary sent to serve their congregations. After several years of correspondence, the society sent Pastor Muhlenberg who arrived in America in 1742. He was an extremely energetic, organized, and talented pastor. He spoke many languages and could minister to people in English, which he did on the trip across the Atlantic. Um, so that's like really a true story. He got off the boat and already had people to help him form a congregation because he converted them on the boat ride over, right? which is pretty great. Um, he not only served the congregation in, in and around Philadelphia, but he also visited contract, contacted Lutherans everywhere from Georgia to New England and helped Lutherans in North America get their act together. Um, it's, it's truly an amazing story, right? You have all these scattered Lutherans, and it's 1733, so by this time, there's it's not just the 13 colonies anymore, right? You'd have to look at a map and see what all states exist at this point. But, um, I mean, you're, you're going wet. You got basically the... The eastern half of America at this point is somewhat formed. Um, in 1748, he formed the Pennsylvania Ministerium, uh, which is kind of the first Lutheran synod in America. 
which really served all the colonies by bringing together whatever Lutheran pastors there were, both Germans and Swedes, to set standards for congregations and schools, settle disputes, assist one another financially, train homegrown pastors uh, who still had to be formally at this time shipped back to Europe to be examined or ordained, uh, to serve among them and generally do what an organized church does. The Pennsylvania Ministerium was basically the first organized American Lutheran church and lasted even after Muhlenberg died in 1787. Although he himself wasn't so sure and preferred neutrality, uh, Muhlenberg's large family was fiercely pro-American in the revolution. This is uh, pretty interesting. If you go to Valley Forge, for instance, um, they have a whole section of Muhlenberg's camp. Well, that's about his son. So Muhlenberg's son became a general in the revolution. Um, and his, his, as it says here, his family was fiercely pro-American and, and wanted to be separate from Europe. Um, and, and that really does, I think, in one sense, help the Lutherans in that time. Uh, this has always been something that Lutherans have struggled with, that... Um, <coughs> Excuse me. My, my throat's not feeling 100% tonight. Um, because Lutherans have such a strong tie back to Germany and back to Scandinavia, like the Lutherans that are in America can more or less trace their descendancy from Germany or, or Scandinavia. And, and also because Lutherans in America tended to hold on to German for so long. There's always been this question, questionable nature of Lutherans in America as to whether or not they're really Americans, all right? And that, that sounds kind of weird to us today, but um, if you think back to, say, World War One, when we're at war with Germany and your neighborhood Lutheran church is having services in German still, that seems a little odd, right? Um and so that's that's actually, by the way, when uh, American flags came into churches, right? Flags in churches never really existed. That's a modern invention. But um, the reason that Americans have or Lutheran Americans have flags in their churches, for the most part, is because they were show they were trying to say, hey, we're not um, German sympathizers just because we're speaking Germany, or we're speaking Ger- we're speaking German. We're not German sympathizers. So. Uh, during the world wars. Anyway, um, but the fact that Muhlenberg's family was so fiercely pro-American, that helped kind of get the church established in America. All right, so following the American Revolution, a growing influx of Lutherans came to America. However, they were far from uh, organized or unified. I mean, they were more organized than they were before, but not that organized. And um, especially as more and more came in the 19, 19th century, in the 1800s, um, they started to form their own little synods that were more geographically located. It's also, I mean, today we have the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, right? But we can get on a plane and go to an LCMS church in California and get there by tomorrow morning, Right. You couldn't do that in early America, right? So being organized across all of America was a rather difficult thing at the time. So um, 
that, that it makes sense that when Germans and Scandinavians would go to different parts, settle in different parts of the country, if there were enough Lutherans, they'd kind of just form their own synod locally. So you had all these different synods. You had the New York Ministerium, the North Carolina Synod, the Evangelical Lutheran Synod of Maryland and Virginia, um, and then my favorite, the Tennessee Synod, right? Uh, and the Tennessee Synod, by the way, was the f- first synod to adopt English as its official language. All the other synods, and, the, and they did that from the start. From the start, the Tennessee Synod said, we're going to be English-speaking Lutherans. Which had a, it's, it had its pros and cons, but um, I mean, in in one sense, they were proven right because all Lutherans in America today do speak English, so uh, that is what it is. Tennessee Senate also the um, their kind of leader, the Tennessee Senate, there it's a guy by the name of David Hankel, um, and it, they, he actually had a couple brothers who were all pastors too, the Hankel brothers, and they have some very good theological writings. And they actually translated the first English book of Concord as well. So the Tennessee Senate is great. Um, wish they still existed. We could do that instead. But, I mean, it is what it is. So, I mean, wouldn't it be better if we had a synod named after Tennessee instead of after Missouri? Like, who? I mean, no offense to our Missourians in the congregation. But. Yeah, I don't know. There weren't really that many Lutherans in Mississippi, but there were te- there were Tennessee Synod Lutherans in Mississippi, I think. Um, yeah. I'm, you know, I talked about being Lutheran and coming from a place where there were a lot of Lutherans in Texas, so I thought I'm just gonna see. And they started out coming over here, and they were Wendish. Yeah. Lutherans. On my vicarage, there was a guy from Texas that was windish, yes. that was Lutheran. They came and they wrote back and told them about farmland and one thing or another, and they came over and decided when they, uh, 588 of them, and when they decided that they liked Texas, they decided to settle there instead of Australia. Now, I didn't explain why. Such a big little thing, sir. And uh, they settled between Galveston, where they came on the ships. Mm-hmm. From between there and Austin, and if you go up that way, there's Schulenburg and there's all these little German towns, yeah. Yes, and you would be hard pressed to open your Google and find anything but a Lutheran church. You know, like most places, it's all Baptist. There's Lutherans all Yeah, that, that little stream. And we've visited churches all up in there when we've been on vacation up in there. But uh, I just always knew. Because of the port and the immigration, and there were good things, and then they worked their way on up from the coast up towards uh, Austin. And right. What's now the Texas Hill Country, or what was the end of the Hill Right, right. Yeah, um, I'm looking it up to uh, see exactly where it is, but. I think I just put it in here. So, uh, Windish refers to um, people from the Wends, which is. Uh, it's W-E-N-D-S and um, it's a little it's a historical name for Slavs so they're Slavic people who inhabited um, northeast Germany at the time yeah Um, and they so some of the winds did travel to Australia and um, 
I think they had family in going to both places in the new world. They had some going to Australia and some going to America, and that's that's why they were trying to decide where to go. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I knew a guy descended from that uh, on on Vicarage. He was a a Windish guy. So. I have never It's a very small community, so. But at that time, yeah. uh, the official religion of the Windish people in, in Germany was was Lutheranism. So, was Lutheranism. That's why that's why they say Lutheran when they came here. So, um, all right. So just to finish this this chapter up real quick in that last paragraph, many of these ended up joining together and the cooperative, what was called General Synod, that formed in 1820. And so the General Synod um, was all these ver- various local synods that they did keep their autonomy, but they started to work together on a more national scale. And so out of the General Synod, um, we'll get some of the first Lutheran seminaries in America and some of the first uh, worship resources and some of these other things. So uh, we'll talk about that next time. And uh, and then we'll get into the, where the LCMS comes from. So. People from the LCMS uh, come here in the 1830s, and that that's what we'll we'll get to next time. So yeah. Was See. most of this immigration because they were being persecuted in the place where they were at? Or it's taxes, a mix. Taxes were too high, or it's a mix. I mean, it's uh, it's a broader question because it's like, why did anyone come to America? Well, early on, people came. To America, and I mean, in colonial America, um, you had a lot of slave trade, including um, actually at first, majoritively white slave trade, um, where basically it was this new world of farmland, and um, they would, yeah, it would, yeah, it'd ship ship people, poor people from Europe over. It's like, hey, you got you don't got anything better on going going on over here, yeah. You don't got anything better going on over here. So I have I have ancestors that were part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, you know, later on, it, there's various reasons why there's people who just want to explore, right? There's people who um, hear that it's cheaper. There's people who come because of religious persecution. People come for all sorts of reasons. So that's basically why. Um, you have people from all over. Now, the, the Saxons who are going to come and form the Missouri Synod, they come because of religious persecution. But um, that's, yeah, that's one of many reasons people come. Yeah. All right. Let's end in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have preserved the faith in so many places throughout history. And we especially thank you that you preserved the evangelical, the gospel-centered religion in North America that even though at times it seems like it might not survive, we may have a church today to worship in and to hear your word. We thank you for all these gifts that you continue to give us, and we pray that you would always keep us thankful and keep our eyes on your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this through your Son, the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.